This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Nicotine dependence is one of the most common public health problems we see in a primary care practice. Currently, the prevalence of smoking in the general population is somewhere around 15%. However, 50 to 95% of patients in mental health and addiction treatment settings smoke cigarettes. Nearly half of the cigarettes sold in the United States are consumed by people with mental illness and other addictive disorders. With us today is Dr. Taylor Hayes, a general internist in the Division of General Internal Medicine and director of the Nicotine Dependence Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We'll be discussing nicotine dependence and mental illness. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks, Daryl, for having me. Well, these are sobering statistics. I was surprised to hear that. I had no idea that was the case. It is the case. <clears throat> and and um, what is happening and what has happened over the last few decades is we've been very successful in, in our tobacco control efforts through multiple means, you know, the, the, the public health means, policy, smoke-free indoor air spaces, uh, public education, and the availability of treatment. As we've done that and have driven down smoking prevalence in the adult population, we have seen a concentration of people who are continuing to smoke among people who have serious and persisting mental illness especially. And I think if you if you think about your own practice, if our listeners think about their practices, especially those who are in family medicine, general internal medicine practice, they'll immediately recognize this as the case, that most of the people who are still smoking, especially the heavy smokers in their practice, will often have a co-occurring serious mental illness. So we talk about mental illness. That covers a wide variety of topics. So what kind of mental illness are we talking about here? So all kinds, So, and, and I would include in that um, primarily uh, anxiety disorders, major depression, um, bipolar uh, mood disorders, and psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. Hmm. Okay. So what are the unique considerations that we need to give these patients who have both mental illness and nicotine dependence? To me, the first thing is to immediately dispel the myth that these people, and we talk about them like they're some other tribe, they're us. I mean, people who have serious mental illness live and work among us and they're in our families. Um, the, there's a myth and it's part of the stigma of mental illness that they need to smoke. That somehow tobacco and whatever they get from it is something that they require for to maintain their stability in their mental illness. And that is absolutely not the case. Now there are clearly, because of the numbers you talked about, there's, there are clearly some things that predispose people with mental illness to smoke and smoke heavily. Or perhaps there's some common factor for both. Uh, but they, they don't need it. It doesn't make their life better. In fact, it makes it worse, and we can talk about that. And it doesn't really make their mental illness more stable to continue to smoke. So I, I think that's the first thing, dispel the myth. And secondly, the, the myth that they can't quit. Mm -hmm. um, or that 
having them quit or helping them quit will somehow, and this feeds into the first myth, make their mental illness much worse mm-hmm. because they need it. <laughs> well, I can picture how maybe a patient with chronic anxiety might use tobacco as a means of calming down relaxation but do we know which came first? Did the mental illness come first and then smoking, or smoking then mental illness? Or it, it, we don't know. We we don't know. In fact, there are studies that suggest both things. Um, there are certain probably there's no addictive personality, but there are certain personality factors. If you look at the, uh, the kind of the standard five factor approach to personality, there are certain personality things um, like openness to experience and and so forth that predispose people. So the thinking is maybe there's a common factor really between mental illness or the predisposition for it and the predisposition for tobacco use and other substance use disorders uh, as we've talked about before and I would include them in the other mental illness that smokers often um, have. Mm -hmm. Well let's talk about some specifics such as Many of our patients who are depressed are on antidepressants, and that's often one of the treatments we use for nicotine dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we take that into account? I, I believe someone with depression um, who's stable. Um, so uh, let me digress just a moment. If some, if a patient is unstable, um, their mental illness is unstable then trying to deal with their tobacco dependence probably isn't the first priority. It really is now either, it's working with their um, mental health provider uh, to decide what can we do to get them back to stability. And that's usually symptoms are controlled and their medications have been stable for at least a month. That's Mm -hmm. kind of my rough definition. So if someone is stable on their treatment for depression, uh, then we just add what we would normally do for tobacco dependence treatment on top of that. As you mentioned, sometimes we treat, with, especially with bupropion, which is an antidepressant. If someone's already on it and they're continuing to smoke, then I would say, uh, obviously the indication was depression. I wouldn't change it, wouldn't alter that treatment, but would then devise a treatment plan, probably using nicotine replacement and or varenicline, uh, and then a behavioral plan and connecting with a, a counselor to do that, to develop that behavioral plan and help them quit that mm-hmm. way. Uh, and I wouldn't alter the, the mental health treatment plan at all. And what we know is that people with depression, for example, who quit, are actually improved. Psychological distress uh, reduces considerably. The impact of stopping smoking on depression, looking at people who are successfully absent months later, is is similar to treatment with a first-line antidepressant for mild to moderate depression. Hmm, that's that's the impact it has on hmm. the mood. What about the patient who stops smoking and has some psychiatric illness? How do they handle the tobacco nicotine withdrawal symptoms? Really the same as in any other patient, it just so happens that people who with serious mental illness often are uh, more heavily addicted. So, for example, someone with psychotic disorder, um, often they're smoking very heavily. And so we would we tailor our treatments to the heaviness of smoking degree of dependence. It's not one size fits all. So it truly, if you if everyone who comes to you gets one 21 milligram patch and that's all you give them, 
it won't be terribly successful. It, it, it's similar to our approaches to most other chronic illnesses. We tailor treatment to the, to the patient's needs and their response to therapy. And so I treat them with either higher doses of nicotine replacement therapy or with combination therapy and for longer. In fact, there is a study that shows in people with psychotic disorder and bipolar disorder using varenicline, if you use it to help them quit, uh, in this study, then they divided the patients into two groups after successful quitting with varenicline. So everyone was abstinent, and then they were divided into receiving placebo for 12 more months or active for 12 more months. And the group that got active varenicline did much better, three to four times better hmm. than the people who were stopped at 12 weeks. And so that tells me also that people with serious mental illness who are more <laughs> likely to relapse um, longer therapy to maintain their abstinence is helpful. Um, and so it, it really is no different in kind than we do with other patients. It just sometimes takes more creative uh, approaches to pharmacotherapy and certainly a longer persistent connection with supportive counseling. Mm -hmm. This episode is sponsored in part by Giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B, -I -B, an on-demand library of medical talks covering the most important and advanced topics trending in primary and specialty care. Subscribe now to learn from subject matter experts from Mayo Clinic's top conferences. Subscribers to Giblib receive unlimited access to new exclusive content released every week. Learn more by visiting giblib.com slash mailclinic and use promo code MAYOTALKS to receive one month of free access. That's giblib, G-I-B-L-I-B dot com slash mailclinic. In some of the reading I was doing to prepare for this uh, podcast, I came across something that stated the increased risk of suicide in smokers with mental illness. Is that, uh, is that a valid? Yes, it is. In fact, um, if you look at suicide statistics, smokers are many more times likely than non-smokers to, to have suicidal behavior and have completed suicide. Um, and it probably is a is connected to this connection to serious mental illness and especially depression. Um, and, and so um, people with serious mental illness um, have lower life expectancy if they smoke than if they don't smoke. And the tragedy is, uh, and you may have read this in some of the literature you came across, so for example, psychotic disorder, people with schizophrenia, have a 25-year shorter lifespan than the general adult population in the U.S. And what are they dying from? Well, you might guess. They die, they're dying from cardiovascular disease, chronic lung disease, lung cancer, those diseases that we know are directly related to their smoking because they, you know, as you mentioned, up to 90% of them may continue to smoke, and then they die of smoking-related disease, which is a tragedy uh, given the myths we talked about where people dismiss their smoking as just something that they need to do. Mm-hmm. Well, another issue I can imagine is the social, the social isolation that we sometimes impose on our patients because it's pretty hard to smoke in most places now in public, in restaurants and uh, so forth. So the social isolation with smoking must not help their psychiatric problem. 
Not at all. Uh, not only are they socially isolated, their social connections are often those people who smoke and who have serious mental illness. Um, so it's difficult for them to get the support they need for maintaining abstinence. Many people with serious and persisting mental illness um, may live in a group home setting, for instance, where they still allow smoking, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate. So when they're in those environments, not only are they isolated from support that could help them, they are really in the midst of an environment that continues to support their smoking. Not to mention the secondhand smoke they're, they're receiving as Correct. well. Okay. Do these individuals with mental illness and nicotine dependence have limited access to treatment programs? Often they do, and the, one of the reasons is because it's not, uh, it's not simply the mental illness. Uh, there is also often a connection with being poor and vulnerable in other ways. And so they tend to have um, medical assistance for insurance, uh, or they're disabled and may have uh, Medicare. Uh, either way, their access is usually uh, limited to effective treatment. Mm -hmm. How do you manage patients with mental illness and nicotine dependence? Um, I, first of all, will work with their mental health provider to make sure that they are as we, stable, as we talked about, that the mental health provider feels that this is an appropriate thing for them to do. And if the mental health provider is resistant, I'll, I'll actually, I want, I'll pick up the phone and talk. And, and, and um, I want to understand why they feel that way. Most mental health providers don't resist. They want their patients to stop. They feel uncertain about how to help them often. So once having done that, assured that they're stable uh, clinically from their mental health provider, uh, then I'll approach it uh, by saying, we, you know, we're going to need to use medication, counseling support, uh, and often the medication uh, doses will be maybe higher or we'll use combinations. And you should be prepared to be on them for longer because we want to support your abstinence with those. I'll work with, we have counseling staff here or, who are called tobacco treatment specialists and they're available in many parts of the country. It's now actually a certification that people can get. So I'll work with tobacco treatment specialist counselor and let them know that the patient also has a co-occurring mental illness and that I think they're likely gonna need ongoing connection, not simply a one or two counseling sessions, but I really uh, encourage them to make appointments on a regular basis, at least for proactive phone follow-up, rather than one or two sessions and then keep doing what we've talked about, mm -hmm. you know, but have that constant follow-up and connection. Do you find that psychiatrists typically are comfortable managing nicotine dependence, or do they tend to leave that to others? Some are. It's, it's as variable as among other clinicians. Some are very comfortable with it and others not. Uh, and, and, and many so feel uncertain about the medications. Um, they don't use them very often. And especially when we talk about using higher doses or longer uh, length of therapy, uh, they feel uncertain about doing that. So they'll, uh, in here at Mayo, we have the luxury of having experts right here, so um, mm -hmm. they'll often refer to us to manage that. Well, you work in nicotine dependence. Do you or your colleagues ever go to the psychiatric units and help manage those patients while they're in the unit? We do. So we, we work closely with the psychiatrists here in our inpatient psychiatry units uh, to provide treatment to those patients. Um, they need they have a regulatory standard they must meet and they must provide treatment and must provide some follow-up too so we help them 
do that, both providing follow-up and then um, determining what the smoking status is of their patients in the longer-term follow-up. Uh, so it has become um, a good working relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Certainly this is a challenging group of patients to manage. Do you have any idea what the success rate in these patients with mental illness is and abstinence? With any single treatment, it probably is slightly less than, than for adults with no mental illness. So um, if I give an, an, an adult with no mental illness history um, effective therapy, they go to a counselor and we give, use effective pharmacotherapy, usually at six months um, in, in, in at least an hour outpatient treatment, uh, about 30% of them are not smoking. Um, in people with serious mental illness, it's often in the teens, so mm -hmm. about half, uh, but we try again. So it's not that, um, that they can't quit or that they don't want to quit, but it often takes more treatment episodes because of the higher relapse risk uh, to get to that point of long-term abstinence. Have you noticed if the treatment is more effective when their psychiatric illness is currently well-controlled? Oh, absolutely. If, if their um, psychiatric mental illness is uncontrolled or unstable, um, we, although we may, tr we may try to help them quit, um, our outcomes are not nearly as good. Mm -hmm. So we really want them to be stable from the mental health point of view, as stable as can be. Um, and we also encourage them to continue to get ongoing support with their mental health provider, which is not, sometimes it is the psychiatrist, but sometimes it's a social worker mm -hmm. or others. And so we'll work with them to make sure that they have that ongoing support. We've been discussing nicotine dependence and mental illness with Dr. Taylor Hayes, an internist and director of the Nicotine Dependence Center at Mayo Clinic. Taylor, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure, Daryl. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks. You can access and listen to over 80 different podcasts covering a variety of medical topics pertinent to the primary care provider. You can find us at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.